Hello, and welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation podcast. I'm Enid Portuguese, Communications Director for the Foundation. Today, we have a recording from our July 26th event with screenwriter, playwright, and director Phyllis Nagy. We once again teamed up with our pals from NYU Tisch, which is also Phyllis's alma mater, to delve into her process for adapting novels into plays and films. Phyllis recently received critical acclaim for her screenplay adaptation of Carol, which was based on a Patricia Highsmith novel. She's also written tons of plays based on books by Highsmith, Anton Chekhov, and Nathaniel Hawthorne. So she offers great advice on how to honor one writer's work, yet also showcase your own. We've got some great upcoming events lined up for you at the foundation. That includes our annual Emmys panel, Sublime Prime Time, which we co-host with the Writers Guild of America West and Variety. That will be on September 15th at the WGA Theater. Better Call Saul star Bob Odenkirk plays host, which we're excited about. And so far, the panel includes the People vs. O.J. Simpson creators Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, Veep writers Alex Gregory and Peter Huck, Unreal co-creator and executive producer Marty Noxon, The Simpsons writer Carolyn O'Mean, and much more to be announced soon. So get your tickets at wgfoundation.org. And without further ado, here is In Conversation with Phyllis Nagy. Thank you. Hi, guys. Um, so excited to see everyone here tonight. Um, and I am so, so excited to welcome Phyllis Nagy. She is an acclaimed screenwriter, playwright, film and theater director. And to list just a very few of her accomplishments, um, she, or rather accolades, she was nominated for primetime Emmys for both the writing and directing of her screen debut, Mrs. Harris. And most recently, she received a slew of award nominations for Best Adapted Screenplay for the film Carol, including an Academy Award. So let's welcome Phyllis Nash. So, first of all, thank you so much for coming and for being here tonight. Um, since we do have an NYU contingent here in the audience tonight, um, I thought I would start by asking you a little bit about your time at NYU. Um, are there any particularly fond or not so fond memories you have or any little story you want to share with us? Uh, sure, if that's of interest. Um, I, I was, uh, I didn't go to NYU film school. I went to uh, the dramatic writing program at Tisch. Reluctantly, <laughs> um, I thought I was going to be a music major and in fact um, have a music minor, uh, which I spent a whole lot more time uh, devoting attention to. While I was there, um, it was the new department when I was there and so anything went. There were courses in tap dancing and um, sort of odd yoga video classes, which <laughs> we all loved because you didn't really do anything. <laughs> um, but I have a particularly fond memories of a playwright, a wonderful playwright, who until very recently taught at uh, the Dramatic Writing Program by the name of Len Jenkin. Um, if you don't know his work and you're interested in theater, look this guy up. He's a tremendous, tremendous um, writer. He's a writer's writer. Um, 
And he was the first person who, who I believed when he told me, yeah, you could do this. Um, mm. When I was writing really bizarre plays that were 40 pages without a single line of dialogue. <laughs> and, you know, Len would say, yeah, that's great. Um, and then the other not so fond memory which I think a lot of people must have this kind of memory from from art schools Um, there was another um, playwriting teacher uh, who shall remain nameless um, who took one look at my thesis play and said oh dear um, you will never ever be a working writer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Recently had an email from her. <laughs> um, it didn't say I was wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, she just said I'm 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 very cheered by your recent recent success, and I <laughs> wrote back to her and said, "Where have you been for the last twenty years?" <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, it's school. We all, we all, we all have those um, memories of school. But I loved being there, and I grew up in New York, so um, going to NYU seemed better than working in the bookstore. Is what it, <laughs> what it really um, for me came down to. But then I, of course, had to work in the bookstore anyway <laughs> while I was going to NYU. That was an undergrad. I, I didn't go to grad school. Neither, I think, did many of us. Um, so then we'll walk us through a little bit of your history, um, a little bit of your upbringing, perhaps including the bookstore and your first forays into writing and also how you came to the Royal Court Theater and to screenwriting. Well, I, I, I grew up on, in the East Village, which then was the Lower East Side, um, St. Mark's Place. Um, between First and Second Avenues, which was a very colorful place to grow up. If only I had known that. Um, <laughs> my parents were, are, um, still, um, very uh, working class um, Italian-American with a dollop of Hungarian. Uh, those Hungarians were um, summarily dismissed by my grandmothers <laughs> before I came onto the scene, so I don't, I don't know them. Um, but mostly it was Sicilians and a, a sprinkle of northern Italian, very working class. No one had made it past eighth grade. And they had these, this weird little kid who liked to read. <laughs> so, you know, when, when my granny, who worked at the local A&P, would introduce me to her friend, she'd say, she's the one who reads. Oh, okay. All right. Um, and, but it was great because... If the nuns, I was a product of the local Catholic school, said the kid, you know, she has to read books. She just picked whatever was off the rack in the A&P in the days when supermarkets sold books right there, little mass market books. So I could be reading The Valley of the Dolls (laughs) or The Scarlet Letter or whatever was there. I don't think I've ever read a children's book in my life. Um... And now they'd probably lock her up, right? But <laughs> I was glad to have that experience. Um, and, but it was very early on as a result of parents and family not knowing what to do with me that I, loved, I grew to love the movies. There was a 
movie theater at the corner of St. Mark's and 2nd Avenue. It was a repertory house. Um, and they would show double and triple bills of things like Wings and Sunset Boulevard. And um, just, I saw so many films there as a seven-year-old every day in the summer, seven, nine, ten, eating an ice cream cone. And the, the guys who ran it, at, you know, at, at, at a certain point just let me in for free and I pocketed the dollar that I was given, <laughs> you know. Um, so that was my education, basically. Um, reading books that were way, way uh, inappropriate for me to be reading. And seeing films that were probably inappropriate for me to be seeing. Um, until, I, until I got to um, college, which was different. But when I was a kid, I thought I would be either a lawyer. I, li I liked to perform. I, I knew I wasn't going to be an actor. Um, I was always sensible enough to know that that's <laughs> just, no. <laughs> I'm not that much of a masochist or, or an exhibitionist. But um, I knew that I liked something to do with performing. So I played violin, piano. Um, I thought I would be a priest. You know, I didn't know, you know, that <laughs> I couldn't be a Roman Catholic priest. Um, you still can't, can you? Um, a lawyer. I wanted to be a trial attorney until I figured out that I didn't think I could actually stop myself from asking my clients if they were guilty. You know, it's just, yeah, it did matter to me. Um, so drifting into school... Um, I mean, I was a smart kid, and the teachers always said, no, you have to go here, and you have to go to college, and you have to do this. But I didn't want to. I just wanted to um, be out and, and just be among people, which I guess is what writers do and directors do, though I wasn't writing at all. And then when I was um, a late teen, I started writing poetry. Just, just, oh, it's god-awful stuff. Um, there were very long narrative poems um, that were influenced by things like The Wasteland or, you know, like, well, I'm not T.S. Eliot. And um, these sort of gothic um, narratives actually got me into NYU. Those were in the days when you could, you could submit anything, any piece of writing, um, so I think I submitted four pages of this terrible poetry. And Jackie Park, um, who used to be the chairman of the dramatic writing program, just said, yeah, come on, and we'll give you a scholarship. And we'll, yeah. uh, I think you should write plays. So I did. And um, again, I, never, I did not take it seriously at all for a very long time. I got out of college. I... Worked jobs always. My favorite was working at Doubleday on 57th Street. Um, because you used to see all these people come in, you know. Like Robert Redford walked in one day, and I thought, my God, he's short. <laughs> <laughs> nice looking fella, but very short. Um, and uh, it was open until midnight, and I loved the, I loved that shift. I loved the four to midnight shift, because the strangest people would come in. Who was buying books at that hour? Very strange people. <laughs> um, 
strange people and famous people, you know, who would wander in at like 11.45. And the manager would say, oh, we've got to shut the, the shop now because so-and-so's here. And we don't go being young and it's like, who? You know, like Francois Truffaut could walk in and everyone in the shop would go, who's that? You know? <laughs> anyway, it was that kind of place. Um, but I loved it. When I graduated, um, I kept writing these, these little plays and putting them in a drawer because I didn't know what else to do with them. And someone said, why don't you apply to New Dramatists, which is a fantastic developmental organization for playwrights in New York to this day. Um, if you're a member playwright, I think you're a member for seven years and you uh, have access to as many staged readings with real actors um, as you like, real directors. People actually go to see the readings, etc. Again, not that I took advantage of that, by and large. Um, although one of my baby plays um, did, I, I did agree to have a little workshop of it and to give you an idea of the kind of casts they used to put together there. In this particular cast were Helen Hunt, Cherry Jones, Bridget Fonda. Um, this was in the, you know, in the late 80s. Uh, Kathy Chalfont. Um, just on and on and on. The, the Bakers, Blanche and Carol. Uh, it, you know, Cynthia Nixon. It's just a whole bevy. And they do that, you know, to this day you'd get the equivalent kind of actor. Um, and I realized that I liked doing this. But again, I was surrounded by people who were, I mean, August Wilson was a member playwright at the time. And I thought, well, I, <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> Fine. Um, so... In those days, they did these exchanges, like um, somebody from the Playwright Center in Minneapolis would um, be sent to New Dramatists, and someone from New Dramatists would be sent there. Some of these exchanges were, were more, um, were better than others, or, you know, we, we thought, well, we don't want to go somewhere cold, or we don't want to go somewhere where there's three people in town. That's how we thought about them. And... Uh, Around the time that I got my first NEA uh, individual grant, which that's another story. It's about how grants are given out, which have nothing to do with, well, I suppose it has something to do with talent, but it has a lot to do with who's on the panels and who you know. And that's a National Endowment for yeah, the Arts they don't playwriting give out, fellowship. Uh, they don't give out individual grants anymore. But I had just gotten one of those, bizarrely. And... It was for a lot of money. It was for something like $25,000, which was, I didn't meant I didn't have to work for a long time, in my mind. So, um, they had a, an exchange with the Royal Court Theatre in London. And everyone wanted to go. And the problem is that there were 50-some-odd member playwrights. And the Royal Court would only read five scripts. So, they put everyone's name into a hat... And the first five names drawn out were the first were the scripts that were sent over. Like nobody wanted to go to this weird place in Illinois. So if I'd wanted to, I could have gone there, you know. Um, but my name was one of the names pulled out of that hat. 
And again, it was alongside, you know, I don't know, you're John Patrick Shanley's and you're this one and you're that one. Um, and I thought, okay, a girl can dream. And yet they chose my script, right? So I went over to England for two weeks in November of 91, I think it was. Coincidentally, a guy in England who was running a theater called The Gate, which I don't know if any of you are familiar with, a young guy named Stephen Daldry was running The Gate. And he had read this other play of mine and heard I was going to the Royal Court. And he said, Want, come to The Gate. I want to talk to you about this other play. And I did. And it was the day that he was given the artistic directorship of the Royal Court. And I was sitting in his office when he got the call. So I was having this reading at the, the court, which I was there. You realize, you're crushed and devastated to realize that the artistic director at the time, Max Stafford Clark, lovely guy, legend, he hated my play. I wasn't there because Max liked it. I was there because the literary manager liked it, because the other people on the reading staff were passionate about it. Um, and uh, Max's opinion was that no one would, would be interested in it if there weren't lesbians in it. So, fine. He later changed his mind. But um, Stephen uh, was there. And I had the best time over two weeks. I thought, okay, now this I could get into. It's a bunch of people seriously sitting around working on a text, not doing exercises, not doing, you know, what did you eat last week exercises. And um, this seemed like real work to me. And I loved it. And Stephen at one point said, why don't you just move here? <laughs> And as only someone who's really young and has no idea what that entails um, could think, I said, sure. I got a bunch of letters written, a bunch of false letters, you know, from Stephen, and don't put that in the tape. Um, that will revoke my British citizenship now. Um, the guy who was the literary manager of the National Theater, all of these people said, oh, yes, she's fabulous, and she's making a living as a writer because I was applying under a writer's visa, which I don't think they even have anymore. Um, it was an odd visa where they let playwrights and poets apply, but not prose writers and screenwriters. It seemed very random. Anyway, it was fine for me. Um, within six weeks, I was in the UK for good. Um, unable to make a living any other way but through writing. Not legally anyway. Um, wow. So that's how I got there. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, I guess to, to stay on the Royal Court for just a moment, you were bringing plays that you had written in America that were about places and people in America. What was that like bringing those to life in London? Um, it was, yeah, well, it was thrilling. I mean, there is a there is a style of acting um, uh, that that British actors espouse um, that I really that really suits my work and it's a combination of um, focus uh, on building a character 
um, without reference to anything that happens outside of the text. And um, an ability to be actors as well as performers. There's a distinction that the only um, uh, comparison I can draw is if you look at the work of Bob Fosse, even the film work of Bob Fosse, that is true of every great performance in his work. There are great actors and there are great performers when they really click. Um, there's an awareness of what's what's being um, commented on or acted um, from, say, Roy Scheider in All That Jazz that would just would not have been there had, say, I don't know, Dustin Hoffman done it. It's different. You can see the difference in Lenny, how Hoffman struggles with the presentational aspects of that. But um, Susan Terrell does not, as Honey Bruce. And that's exactly what my work requires. Um, that's why Kate Blanchett um, is so really stunning in Carol, because she is that kind of actor. And so is Rooney Mara, though it doesn't appear that she is, but I, I think she is. So that's, I, I loved it, and I thought I'd never leave. <clears throat> so that, uh, it's not on my list, but then what, what did bring you back? Making movies here, Mrs. Harris, and then what happened in the wake of it. And it just seemed, I was going back and forth, and I just thought, this is crazy. I've got to be here mm -hmm. if I want to pursue this career here. Um, well, I want to get into the meat of your career uh, with film projects as well, but I want to just touch uh, on early on when you were a fact checker for New York Magazine. Um, Times oh, Magazine. New York Times Magazine, and it even says that here. Um, <laughs> and that's when you met Patricia Highsmith, um, the novelist <laughs> who wrote Carol. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your friendship with Highsmith. Well, um, when I met her, she was, it was, I knew her for exactly the last decade of her life. So she was in her, she was about 63, 64. Um, and her reputation preceded her. Um, she, I was warned. I mean, the reason I met her was because the editors um, wanted a, a mystery writer to do a walking tour of a cemetery in Brooklyn, Greenwood Cemetery, where a lot of gangsters and other people of interest are buried. Um, and they wanted Ruth Rendell, the great recently deceased uh, writer, and she wasn't available. So they were thinking about it and said, wow, who else could we get? And I said, well, what about Patricia Highsmith? Great idea. She happened to be in New York. Again, my life is full of coincidental meetings, right? She happened to be in New York promoting one of her last really good books, which was um, a book called Found in the Street. And um, she said yes. So as a punishment or <laughs> maybe a reward, they sent me with her. Um, so I had to go pick this woman up at a, a really surprisingly grungy hotel, um, it's not grungy anymore. It was the, I think it was the Gramercy, Gramercy Park Hotel, which is rather she-she now. Um, but, you know, this frightening woman standing in the corner. She was little, but she, she <laughs> emanated, don't mess around with me. 
in her crumpled Mac and <laughs> her big, enormous feet. And I've said this before. <laughs> she sort of looked like Jimmy Durante at that point. Um, but with this stare that could you know, just kill you. And so we went to the cemetery. Um, <laughs> she barely spoke to me. Um, she asked me three questions in the car about my, you know, did I like Eugene O'Neill as a playwright? Just out of nowhere. Not knowing that you were a playwright? Oh, she did. Okay. She, she did her homework, which made her scarier. Mm. Um, what do you think of O'Neill? Uh, <laughs> I don't. Good. <laughs> what do you think of Williams? I gave the right answers. Mm. Williams, fine. O'Neill, not fine. Sam Shepard, fascinating. You know, <laughs> she had just seen one of his plays. And then we took this awful tour of the crematorium in Greenwood Cemetery, being asked to put our hands in the, in the still warm oven and seeing this like eight foot tall blender full of bones. And we got out, it was like 11 in the morning, and she pulls out this hip flask and says, I don't know about you, but I need a drink. <laughs> Drinks. And just hands it to me, like a, a, a gauntlet. You know, there it is. And I didn't know what was in it, you know, but I didn't want to ask, so I took it, and it was scotch. And uh, she said, you want to have lunch? Or maybe she said, you will have lunch. I mean, <laughs> it was probably... And we went back to her hotel room um, where the, 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 the sort of bureau was full of bottles of scotch and the fridge was full of Budweiser. <laughs> and it just so happened that I was going to be in London the next week again. And so was she. It's another coincidence. She said, oh, you have to come and have lunch with me. You're not so bad. You're kind of smart. Said, okay. Thank you, I think. <laughs> and she invited me to lunch in Maida Vale, which <laughs> is a, a part of London, West London, verging on Northwest London, that is always the setting for like creepy, spinsterish ladies <laughs> who harbor grudges and kill their own cats, kind of as. So she said, come have lunch in Maida Vale with me and my friend Barbara. You know, I said, okay. Um, and so I went and had lunch with Barbara and Pat. And the first thing Pat said to me was, don't tell her I still smoke. She'll kill me. But she looks like she'll kill you. Um, and a lady came in. I mean, there was this gruesome lunch, which I forgot to tell Pat I didn't eat meat. And so this like ham hock was thrown in my plate. I was like, this woman, this wonderful, vivacious, like thank God this funny woman shows up also named Pat, who carried a shoebox on her lap the whole time. And I'm listening to this and they're talking, this Pat and my Pat and Barbara. And um, it became clear to me that what Pat the newcomer was holding on her lap was a shoebox full of her husband's ashes. And her husband was Joseph Losey. <laughs> so this was Pat Losey, the film director. There was never a dull moment So uh, with Pat Highsmith. She knew all these uh, people. Uh, so I can say that I've met Joe Losey. <laughs>
<laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we're getting to a little bit of the transition of film to theater. Um, did you always want to work in both mediums? Is there a medium that you prefer? What would you say have been some of the differences and challenges between them? Well, I always knew I wanted to work in film, but I wanted to be very careful about it. Um, as the years have gone by, I, I felt more and more like this, that film, regardless of what's happening in any particular country, so divorce a sort of um, Hollywood formulaic model from American film. Film is more important to me. It always has been. Theater um, is e easy for me, and it is a lot more conservative than I think people believe it to be at root. Less so in the UK, um, but it is uh, entirely true in... in the, the continent, um, even though um, the rise of auteur theater over there, you would think that that's not the case, but it is entirely the case. Um, and here, the theater to me has always been a place where, you know, you're either seeing the work of topical um, playwrights the sort of thing that you once would have seen on an ABC after-school special. And I'm not quite sure I mean that as an insult, but there is an issue-based um, component to a lot of theater that makes it commercially that just bores me. I just, I'm not interested. Um, and um, I'm not interested in musicals. Um, that's what we do well, I guess. Um, except if it's Gypsy or a couple of others. Um, uh, I'm talking the old stuff, right? Film meant something to me, but I also knew what film was and wasn't for writers. Um, and so I wanted to be smart about it. And I, once my play started becoming very successful, I was asked almost instantly by British um, independent film, which thank God for them, and the one studio, which was and still is Film 4, although Studio Canal actually now finances and makes a lot of mm. British film. Um, I made a deal with myself that I have stuck to to this day, which is if I'm being hired to write something, I will only write adaptations of... Um, books or yeah books that i i love or that i find a challenge in some way or the book that people say oh that's impossible um that's for me um usually of literary quality but not always um and any original screenplay that i have written um is just for me and it's a way to, for me anyway, to keep sane, um, because I am a writer-director, and I don't think that there would be any question of that um, were I uh, a different gender. Um, I don't say that with any um, particular sour grapes or resentment. I do think that that is, I mean, I've seen that happen. Um, and it's harder for women, we know that. 
can you uh, tell us a little bit about when you when you did begin directing and when how that's fit into your career? Um, well, I've directed theater. I started directing theater. I didn't really want to direct my own. I, I've never directed a first production mm. of any of my plays, and I don't think if I write more plays, I will want to necessarily do that. Um, but theater is a different setup. You know, the writer is very much like um, certain TV models. Um, the writer is the... I don't like to use this phrase, but for lack of a better way to put it, is the primary creative. The showrunner, the creator. The, um, and so there's a different relationship that um, most directors of theater have going into it. It's more a partnership. It's more in terms of um, realizing a piece of work. Um, they, they are there to make a piece of theater their own through servicing the ideas that are presented in the text. Mm. Um, and this is the way that films were made, too, in this country until about 1970 or thereabouts, some, something like that. A um, little earlier, maybe. But um, so there's a different relationship. I always wanted to direct um, plays that I thought were brilliant. And the problem with that is there aren't that many. So I would do it um, every so often, every year something. Or um, I directed uh, the British premiere of things like The Scarlet Letter or uh, my, my own adaptation of that. Um, and then film came. Actually, the first thing I was hired to write was Carol. That's how long that's been going on. And the only reason that I was able to persevere with that through 18 years from being hired to it getting to the screen um, was that it was commissioned and shepherded into life under a very different model mm. than we have. So Carol always had the support of the biggest studio in England, but this was a studio with a budget of $10 million, you know, for everything, or 10 million pounds, which at the time was probably about $20 million. And this covered development, and sometimes they would finance, like Lynn Ramsey's first movie, um, Rat Catcher, which must have cost, you know, a million pounds or two million pounds. You could do that. Under the guidance of a really brilliant woman named Tessa Ross, who when she took over film four, that's when it went, you know, it went shooting for the skies. Um, she's gone now, and I'm happy that she's gone, but I'm sad for <laughs> film four. Um, I, I don't know who's running it now, so I shouldn't say I'm sad because someone else is running it. Um, but she allowed, she never allowed the project to die, even when there were years when there was nothing going on with it due to various things that I, I was never able to talk about on the Oscar trail and probably still shouldn't talk about. But one of those Want things to. was not um, that they were, you know, finding problems with the script or trying to get rid of me or, you know, whoever else happened to be attached at the time. 
It was um, watching exactly how the culture, the film culture, was evolving from year to year. One year it was about, um, well, you know, we can only see whoever it is, Gina Davis or um, Julia Roberts or whoever was the only female star who was getting movie. <laughs> they were getting movies greenlit. And this is a very particular thing. If Julia Roberts wasn't right for Carol, which, you know, she's not, um, what could you do? So it was a, a project that had to find its time and place as well as find the right team. So it was maddening. And there were no male leads. Yes, over over the course of the film's life, um, you've mentioned this, that it's it's been up against this pervasive idea that women-led films, which Carol very much is, don't make money. Um, and that this was even more than it being a lesbian film, um, or lesbian love story, rather, that this has been the challenge. Um, so have you, do you feel like this attitude, I mean, has stayed constant? Have you seen sort of the proliferations of it change, the way that it's stated? And have you seen a difference now that Carol has come out in terms of future work of yours? Mine? Well, I, I don't think I've seen a change in the way um, these projects are. And we're talking about dramas, basically. Adult dramas. Um, no, there's been no change in how they're talked about. And I have friends who are having a very hard time um, getting their projects off the ground if it's not a buddy uh, comedy um, or where the woman is the object of some sort of scorn or you can laugh at her at least um, I don't think it changes I think it's tough because you think well the days when movies like Silkwood or even Erin Brockovich, right? Um, that are female-driven dramas, Thelma and Louise. Um, they're, you, they're, they were not easily classified, but were were green lit because of either a director attachment or um, an idea. You can almost feel when it hits its zeitgeist, and we. We came across that a little bit with Carol when people started getting excited about it. Um, it's just tough. We don't we don't make those movies, um, or every once in a while we make those movies. If someone has, um, like I'm, was talking to you back there about a movie I love, which I couldn't believe was ever made, which was um, Foxcatcher. Um, uh, just a beautiful, beautiful script. And, um, you know, it, you realize actually that wasn't made except through the grace of um, Megan Ellison. You know? um, we have now these uber um, benefactors of sorts wandering around bestowing money and everyone, I suppose, has to fight for that little thing, right? So it hasn't gotten better. It may have gotten a little bit worse. I, I don't know. I mean, it always seems the same to me. I mean, and if I sometimes go into the archives of Variety or um, even the New York Times, these stories are the same mm. in 1972, and they're the same now. And 
I, I'm not sure what that I'm not sure what that means. So don't ask me what that means. Um, well, then to talk a little bit about the process of Carol, uh, five different directors were attached throughout the 18 year journey to the screen. The last one being Todd Haynes. Um, so can you tell us a little bit ab about the different directors and what their attachments actually meant for your work? Right. Um, it's fascinating because. Uh, when I was asked to write it, there was no director attached. Um, it was just me and, and, and the original producer who eventually lost the rights to the book. But I was just given a, you know, in film four, I was just, just do what you want. On the basis of the first draft, you know, there was no rewriting at that point. There was no, but not a bunch of people sitting around saying, hmm, I don't know if that would appeal to directors, or I don't know if that would, maybe we could make that clearer. It was all about, let's find someone who actually finds this clear and mm. go from there. You know, get a simpatico person rather than someone who's going to want to fight it, um, which is a uniquely American mm. thing in my experience. Um, Anyway, we found that a director, and um, this was a woman. Uh, the only woman, I think, who's ever been officially attached to Carol. Yeah, in fact, yes. Officially, yes. Um, was that in the interest of getting it produced, do you think? or just No, I think happen? it was someone who... I mean, this is the way it is. It has someone who had just made a film recently that was... Uh, very well liked, that made a little bit of money, um, and she was gay. And so the producer said, oh, let's go for her. That's fine. I mean, you know, that's what happens. She was young. She was, um, you know, eager. And um, we talked about, um, she came from the theater too. And I, I'd known her from the theater and um, she talked about things dramaturgically in a way that um, made some sense, but I wanted to go further than, than she did. And again, I was given my head. Now, we went ahead, we did that rewrite, and then uh, this director was, because it was taking long, ha, huh, it was taking 18 months, right, at that point, um, to get any, uh, you know, a, a financial attachment. We had some money from Film 4. Um, she left and took a TV job. And she's remained in TV ever since, actually, which also happens to women. But that's another thing. Um, anyway, then we had a guy who I loved, um, who made a film that I love uh, about um, Francis Bacon uh, called Love is the Devil. Uh, John Maybury, uh, and uh, it was Daniel Craig's first film role as the rent boy who takes up with bacon. Um, anyway, I loved John, and we had a great time, and mostly we drank in the Colony Club, which was still open, and where bacon had gone, and, you know. Um, and then he left. Um, um, Kate had read the script, when uh, John Crowley was on board, and she said yes immediately. And at that time, I think they attached, um, 
they'd asked Rooney, and Rooney had come off of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and it was like, no, I can't do this. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm done. I'm, <laughs> I'm toast. And so they got Mia Vosikovska, um, who sort of looks like Kate, doesn't she? Anyway, um, lovely actress. And that's who, what we thought it was going to be until 18 months went by and I thought we were going to lose Kate. And I thought, because who can, who can wait? She was very in demand, wasn't she? Um, and then Christine and Liz, who were very old friends, were talking one day and they describe it as the light bulb moment. Todd had been scheduled to make something else. I guess something he wrote and it fell apart like that as things do. And Liz was on the phone with her the day it happened, and Liz said, I, I just lost another director. And Christine said, well, Todd's movie just went bust. And they went, oh. <laughs> do you think maybe? Well, it isn't his right. He's never done anything. He hasn't written. And I basically, you know, they basically said, well, it's worth a try. What else are we going to do? And within 48 hours... He was, he was on. I mean, it helped that Kate, I mean, obviously they'd work together. Kate was very enthusiastic. She wasn't going to leave because, you know, she loved Todd. There was no question that if we could get the money together quickly. And Todd and I had an initial conversation because I, um, you know, not that anyone would have listened to me, but I technically had director approval. <laughs> so I was like... It was clear to me that this was a person who um, understood profoundly what was at the root of this narrative, this particular one. He was not concerned with the plot. He was not concerned with, um, you know, any of the minutia that uh, a lot of my conversations with other directors, not just this on this, but on many projects are... It's like, you're not seeing the forest with the trees, you know. We were, we were fine. We shared a similar view of things like restraint and, um, and, and subtlety. And, and so I knew it would be fine no matter what came. Um, so that's the story of that. <laughs> wow. Um, well, then to take us back sort of generally, um, can you tell us a little bit about your writing process? Um, overall and also how it differs when you're working on original material versus on an adaptation or on theater versus film? You know, I, I don't think it's ever been any different for any, any of these things. Um, part of the reason is that I, you know, I never, I never studied screenplay writing. I mean, I, I read a lot of screenplays, and, but I didn't go, and I watched a lot of films, which, of course, the best way to learn, um, but a lot of films from the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, and you understood that there was once a world in which um, there was a code, and there was a cinematic code in the way that people behaved, in the way that they, um, they spoke, in the very dialogue, the fabric of these things. That was interesting to me. Um, it was theatrical in the very best sense of the word. It wasn't a dull reflection of 
you know, the life I see somebody living down the hall from me. I have no interest in having life in that way replicated. So I'm more like uh, of the opinion that the Greeks were like, you illuminate in some way, you elevate. Um, and even in the most awful circumstances, art lifts up that which we can't see uh, deserves lifting up. Never written an outline. I've never done a, a treatment. I just, I would never get a job if someone asked me to write a treatment because they're deadly. To, I mean, I, I don't have that skill. But I can talk um, till the cows come home. Not necessarily pitch, that's different. <laughs> but because, remember, for hire, I only do adaptations, so I have a great advantage in that there is a book. I can talk about the book. I can talk about exactly what I would do with the book and what you rip out and what you preserve and why that's important. So um, my process then is, and it's the same for original stuff, which is mostly inspired um, by like weird little stories I'll read, like little AP stories. And there's an image in one of these things that I carry around with me for years and then suddenly there's a script. I don't know how that happens, but it starts from an image. When I'm working on something, say I have 16 weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it is to deliver something, I will sit down and for the first 14 or 13 weeks, I will watch baseball, I will <laughs> watch movies, I will um, read the book over and over, make notes just scrawling notes that make me look like something out of a David Fincher movie. And then I put the notes away and never look at them again. And then there's a, there's a moment, there's like the internal alarm clock that says, okay, you have to start now. And I do, and I go from beginning to end. I, I can't start unless I know what the opening image is and what the closing image is. Um, this provides instant structure, actually. Um, and try it sometime, if you don't believe me. If you know that the opening image of your piece of work is um, uh, the Eiffel Tower just standing somewhere, and the closing image of it is that the tip of it is falling off, you can almost instantly create a story. Almost. As long as you know that, your title. I think titles are incredibly important. I get very nervous every time I see something announced, like, untitled so-and-so spec. Like, if it's a spec, it should have a title, right? <laughs> um, uh, and uh, that's, I write from beginning to end. I do not go back, and um, I don't cut and paste. I'm not one of those people. When I get to a certain point, if it feels wrong, <laughs> I go back to the beginning. And every page is altered if I make a change uh, midway through something. And I get through drafts like that in a couple of weeks. Um, so it's a couple of weeks of intense writing with a lot of noise really in the background. Uh, TV, the political conventions are great right now as I'm working. Um, I do write to baseball games a lot because of the, the applause. It's... <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty constant, right? You know, it's like great. Just keep keep. It's something you'll never get at any other point in your life. Um, 
And um, rewriting, though, this is a very different um, process. I can only write at home, wherever my home is, first drafts. I cannot write first drafts anywhere else, ever. I've tried. Um, I think, well, wouldn't it be nice to go away and write this? And I get there, and I'm like, uh-uh, this isn't going to work. It's not my, it's not my safe space. But rewriting, I can do anywhere, um, at all, uh, and have a, a lot. Um, uh, it's just a very different skill. Um, and whether you're rewriting for someone else, a producer, a studio, or yourself, that's different again. And I'm much harsher on myself than any studio or producer has ever been. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I know that that is a fact. Um, but I think generally it's good to be your own worst critic. Well, then perhaps, uh, can you tell us about any projects that you're currently working on, or if not, a dream? Okay. <laughs> I can generally. I mean, two of them I can talk about specifically. One of them I just can't say what the title is. Um, I'm doing two scripts for studios, one for Sony, one for Fox 2000. Um, and they're both adaptations. And they're both thrillers because um, as I was sifting through all the, the stuff that was being sent me um, uh, as a result of Carol, um, what I realized was that there were three general categories from studios, that is. Um, one is uh, soft, what I, what I call soft women's movies. Um, like, why would you send me bridesmaids? But this like I'm not that person or um, movies about mothers and their children and I would say in all seriousness well does she kill the child because <laughs> I'm your girl but I, you know, I, no um, this sort of thing so the women's movies which I basically said listen I would rather write a movie about like 10 men in a Russian submarine like, no so that, then there's the issue-based movies like, oh, I don't know. You just think about any topical thing. And I have an, ana I'm, it's, an it's anathema to me. I think that um, that's the wrong way to approach those movies. Like if you're writing about social injustice, the last thing you do is find someone who's on trial for, well, I don't know what. Um, I don't like those movies. I never have... Um, some of them are effective, but I know I could never write them. So the third thing they do are thrillers. <laughs> I mean, there is no... And some of them are incredibly dark, um, a la the sevens of the world, and, and some of them are stupid. Um, in these, both of these cases, I'm very happy to be doing them. One, the one for Sony is based on a novel by a young German woman, um, it was just published in English. Now I'm at the stage, I guess, whether this is lucky or unlucky, I'm getting stuff in manuscript, so before they're published. Um, so I, I don't have to read the reviews of people's books, and it's so freeing. And I read this book, it's called The Trap, um, about a woman, a very successful author, in her late 30s, 
I had to laugh at the novelist description of her. She's a literary author who's very rich. It's like, okay, maybe in Germany. Um, or maybe if you're Toni Morrison, but most of these people, no. Um, but anyway, she's uh, complete agoraphobic. She's quite crazy, but her money insulates her. Um, and people around her pretend that, you know, there's nothing wrong. But the reason she didn't leave her house, or she hasn't left her house, is because the last time she was out and about, she witnessed the murder of her younger sister. Um, and so there's a psychological um, fear, obviously, um, and a deep connection to certain events that I'll keep hidden. But basically the motor of this is that one day on TV she sees this guy who's like, it'd be like you seeing, I don't know, Brian Williams or someone, and saying, that's the guy who killed my sister. Well, who's going to believe her? Anyway, she has to devise um, a trap for him to walk into. But of course, things are never as simple as that. What I, what I really liked about the book was that uh, she, rely, she has to rely in the end on no one but herself to get out of this rather death-in-the-maiden-ish situation that's created. Um, so that's one thing. The other one, uh, and that's what, I think that should be uh, in production by the end of the year. Very um, exciting. The other one I'm very excited about, it's by, it's, um, it's a tough thing. It's not an adaptation of one book, um, but it's based on a series of books uh, thriller mysteries that have been around um, that they've never quite been able to um, get going, get made. Um, and so I feel like I've been given this chance to, uh, and I'll be, I'm hell-bent on, on making sure that this particular thing works. Again, centered on a, a central female character with another strong female character um, who's gay. And so that helps. And um, it's about women. It's not about somebody being chased by a psycho in a in a mental institution or whatever it is. So they're in more in much more intelligent, and they're meant to be more psychological. Now I can't control what happens to it um, once it's given over to whoever makes the film, I suspect the process will be a lot different than it was on Carol, so we'll see. And then I'm doing a TV show. I'm, I'm creating a TV show for um, Paramount TV and anonymous content based on um, an absolutely exquisite book um, by Rachel Kushner called Telex from Cuba um, about... Uh, American corporations in the Oriente province in uh, basically from the rise of Batista to the rise of Castro, the United Fruit Company and mining interests basically mm. colonized that part of Cuba. Um, and it's about the, the, the expat experience, not only of the Americans, but, you know, lots of other people were living, working, um, being exploited in Cuba, the Haitians, the Jamaicans, the Chinese, um, uh, all living cheek by jowl in rather different circumstances, and a bunch of old Nazis, um, and Frenchmen, 
who were part of the Vichy government. Um, Havana was crawling with um, really interesting types, let's say. So it's going to span the entire decade of the 50s. Um, uh, if, it's, if the pilot is picked up, um, um, I'll be a showrunner, and so I'll have to let you know what that's like. Um, I can't imagine that it's any more difficult <laughs> than directing a film, but I could be very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Those sound incredible, and that sounds very exciting. Um, so I want to leave a little time to for our audience to ask questions. So I'm just going to ask you one more, which is really very open-ended. Um, is there anything that nobody ever asks you, but they that you wish they would? <laughs> um, yes, I suppose so. Um, is there anything else you'd rather be doing with your life than this? <laughs> and the answer is probably yes. Um, two things that I have never been able to choose. So I, it would be hard if someone said, you could do either or. Which one? One is to be the chief of staff of the president of the United States. <laughs> oh, what a job that would be. I love that. I would, I would be great at that. And the other is to manage the New York Yankees. And I would be very good at that, too. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Um, that was so great. Well, then, how about you guys? Um, some questions. And is someone also, else someone else? If we could have people wait for uh, the microphone when, you, when you're called on so that we can get it for the recording, that'd be great. Excellent. I saw a hand over. So I think I saw your hand first, so... Um, thanks a lot. This has been really wonderful and super interesting to listen to. I had a question about Carol, um, a specific line that really intrigued me that I was just curious what you meant by it or what um, it was intended. So it's when um, Therese and Carol first go to bed and Therese sort of lays, uh, Carol lays Therese down and she says, I never looked like that. And I just, that's always stuck with me. And I was wondering if you could talk about that line. That's a, that's a line I had to fight to keep in. Um, women talk to each other. You know, you see all of these scenes, these sex scenes where people just go, <sighs> and <laughs> who are you sleeping with? I mean, like, anyway. They're in a crappy hotel room, um, <coughs> which was beautifully preserved and beautifully set um, in, in the Judy Becker and Ed and Todd. Yeah. Um, the lights were on, um, which was really important to me. And um, in the midst of this very difficult time, in the, this awful place with the green walls and the you know hideous um, cheap bedspread, I think Therese is probably the most beautiful thing she's ever seen. And Carol means it when she says, "I never had a body. I never had a body like that. I never had boobs like that. I never, whatever." She means it. That's all that is. And it's a and it's a thing that I think is a generous instinctive but generous thing for her to do um yeah so yeah 
I, um, I've been a Patricia Highsmith fan for a long time and love The Price of Salt, and so I was really happy to see Carol and enjoyed it. And a, a little while ago, you mentioned knowing what to keep and what to throw out. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and doing an adaptation. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is something... For me, the key to adaptation is there are two things that I always have to keep at the back of my mind when I'm working from source material. What is the tone of the source, which is usually the thing that attracts me to something? The quality of the writing, yes, in a certain sort of piece of work, but when I'm reading a, a thriller that's meant to be read at the beach, the line-by-line -line writing is not what... It's something about the tone of something. If it's a little off, it's a little funny, it's whatever it is, you must preserve that. To me, that's the reason to just do the book, to, to adapt a book rather than do your own thing. It's the tone and the intention of the original author. Um, but beyond that, a book and a film are such a different medium. They temporarily, majorly, that's the major concern, the temporal concerns are so very different. Um, and I tend to be attracted to things that aren't that heavy on plot, but that are heavier on mood and character. And so that it doesn't matter if I do not have them go to Poughkeepsie as they do in a book, but cut out that damn trip or this one or that. It doesn't matter because what I'm being true to is what I think the author is getting at underneath there. What is the metaphor? What's, what's the subtext? If a book has zero subtext, and there are a lot of them out there, I am unlikely to be interested enough. So tone and intention for me, yeah. I'll just wait for the microphone. Oh, thank you. I'm also a New Yorker who went to NYU, so I right. <laughs> very much understand. the um, This masterpiece, Carol, Mr. Ripley, and Strangers on a Train, are so very different. And I was wondering if you could kind of comment on how that influenced you. Um, you mean the books or the, the films that were subsequently made? Oh, okay. Um, it's interesting. I love Strangers on a Train, the book and the film. But the film completely betrays the intention of Patricia Highsmith. I made the mistake once of saying to her that I really loved Strangers on a Train and she almost never talked to me again. Um, they trade murders in the book. Um, they do not in the film, and that seems pretty major to me. Um, still, it's a great film, but it's not because of the script, I don't think, in that case. Ripley, you know, it's it, funny to me. Um, I don't know what she would have made of it. She was dead by, by the time it came out. Um, personally, for me, I mean, it's fine, it's lovely, it's all those things, but... Tom Ripley, in my opinion, would rather slit his own throat than admit that he was homosexual. It, it forms 
the basis of his um, psychopathology. And so once you name it, I don't believe that he has to kill anyone. Um, so for me, that is a problem. But it's certainly a beautiful movie. And... Um, well, um, you know, well done and all that. It's just I have a difference of um, opinion about, again, a betraying of the source. I think Pat felt that there was never a good adaptation of her work. Um, and she, maybe she would have thought Carol was terrible. I don't know. But um, she would have liked Kate. I know that. <laughs> Kate was her type. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Since The Price of Salt was such a small book and you had to really build up the personality of Carol, and what was your process of getting into her psyche, of figuring out who she should be in the film? Yeah, that's interesting because yeah, she's almost non-existent as a character in the book. Um, we hear about her through Therese, and that's a very uh, unreliable narrator, really, in that way. Um, honestly... As I was rooting around for Carol, I'd known Pat, and I'd known some of the women that she had been obsessed with. Um, the Price of Salt is a Pat Highsmith novel. There is an undercurrent of obsession, paranoia. Um, all of that's going on in there, as well as all the other stuff. Um, and I had, when I was starting to write, I, I watched rear window again and I thought that is Carol Grace Kelly in rear window is Carol and so once I had that in my mind it was easy to write Carol I wrote it as if Grace Kelly were walking across the page in that movie in those clothes and what's weird is how close that actually that that you know that writer's private vision came in the end yeah. Yeah. What did you think of the parody of Carol that was done on that award show? <laughs> I loved it. I was there. Um Yeah, I really liked it. I don't I don't know that you couldn't. I, it was I was a lot happier with that than I was with the parody of Room, which I thought was like really going after it. <laughs> so I thought, I'm glad to be Carol today. <laughs> Thanks. Um, this has been really illuminating, so thank you. Um, I, uh, it's, there seems to be a very abundant sort of burden on um, emerging writers today um, to denote themselves as either a playwright or a screenwriter, especially when they're starting out. Um, I think a lot of that might have to do with um, applying to fellowships. Um, and like, I don't think today people want to hear that. I just want to do it all. They, they really want to show um, a focus on one. So my question for you is, um, do you think that's for reasons of just like commerce, where you have to sort of label yourself? Or do you think for a young artist it is maybe intelligent to um, try and master one medium before moving fully into another rather than straddle both the whole time? It's a very interesting question. Um, 
My inclination would be to say, and this is based on not just my own experience, but friends who have tried uh, everything. Um, I'm not an everything sort of person. I know what I can do. Um, it makes real sense. It, not everyone is equally good at plays, screenplays, and God knows television, which is a completely different animal as well. Um, I think the natural... Um, it depends on what kind of writer you are. If you are... Um, if you're a playwright, I see this all the time, and you write the kind of plays which are episodic in structure, which to me are not inherently theatrical, like 97 short scenes. Here, we're in a restaurant. We're here, we're here. We're, we're, that is not a theatrical structure. That's an episodic structure. You would be better at television. I mean, there's a natural home. I can see that. So if you focus on those two. But if you're this other kind of writer, if you're um, structurally bold, and you really know structure. I mean, you don't have to know or be able to use uh, McKee language or talk to me about beats and arcs. I, my eyes spin in the back of my head when people talk about that stuff. So, so you're talking about characters? I get all obnoxious, you know? <laughs> um, if you're that kind of writer, if you are... Um, I'm trying to think of someone who's really structurally bold. Anyway, if you're a theatrical writer as a playwright, you might find a better home in cinema. Um, but again, the structure of stage and cinema are so different that I know very few playwrights who actually make a successful, really successful transition. Um, it's, it's hard Film is much harder, especially since you're mostly working for other people who will always have something to say, and you have to be structurally adept enough to not to satisfy their notes and yourself at the same time. And if you can't do that, um, you will be very unhappy, and you're better off not doing it. Because I don't think there's a there's no middle ground. You can't fudge it. Um, people want what they want. They're spending a lot of money. <laughs> and who are you to, you know, with specs it's different, of course. But I think the natural affinity for most is TV and theater. Um, unless you know a lot about movies, which, you know, you may do. Hi, thank you so much. This was amazing. Um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about... Um, control and power in as a female in the film industry when did you start to feel you had any sort of control and power did it have anything to do or do you still at all um, um, and uh, did it have anything to do with um, representation when did this transition happen for you in your life huh I don't think you ever have control if 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 you are just purely a writer um, I don't care who you are, you never have control of any project unless it's yours and you're the producer. And However, this I can tell you, <clears throat> whatever power I have had in this crazy business um, comes from my ability to say no 
That is the most important thing you have to learn to say. No. And it's not no to changes or notes. It's not what I'm talking about. That's silly. Um, there is no such thing as a sacred script. Um, again, especially when you're being paid to write it, that's a transaction. You have to understand it. And your hope is that you get better at picking your producers, you know, who will fight for you. And if people at studios like you, all the better, because then you'll be trusted more. But it's about saying no to any damn job that comes your way. I mean, I know it's hard, especially when you're starting out. Um, you think you'll never get another job. Actors are like this too. Um, and I can't blame anyone. But you have got to cultivate the bravery and the ability to know when you are just not right for something um, or when we are not all good at everything and you've also got to know who you're with if you have a sense that someone is a creep. You can't work with them. And if you do, that's your problem. You know, you don't go crying to anyone. You knew they were a creep. Um, it's hard if you're broke. Um, but I've always just decided to say to myself, I'd rather work at Walmart than do that. If you're not willing to say that, then it's really, I think, a lot rougher <laughs> of a ride because you, there are horror stories. And, you know, you've all heard them already, probably. Um, the ability to say no and the ability to know just what you can and cannot do. Um, I can't write a sitcom. Um, I, I don't care what someone offered me. It would be the worst sitcom ever. Not because I'm not funny. It's because all the jokes would be about horrible things um, <laughs> that people just don't want to hear in a sitcom. Um, I, I could never write Bridget Jones. I wish I could. But again, you know, it would turn out like a Todd Salon movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe I would like to see, but, you know, no one else would. Um, know what you're good at. We all can't do everything. Um, your power, though, only comes from never going back on your fundamental things. Me, for me, it's been this way since 1995 or 97 when I started writing films. Adaptations only <laughs> for someone else to direct. Um, I don't write outlines. I don't write treatments. Um, sorry. If you don't want to hire me because of that, that's fine. I don't care, no matter how much I, I think I'd be good at it. Um, the minute you go back on that, it's like once under extreme duress, I agreed to write. It wasn't even an outline. It was like some stupid narrative document. And the first draft of that script was awful. It was the worst thing I ever wrote. And I knew it because I was bound to the damn outline. So that's a lesson. Don't do it. Otherwise, you have zero power unless you, you direct. And even then, you, you know, there are ways that your power can be uh, taken from you, I suppose. Why don't we take two more questions? I see one here and one there. Hi, um, thanks so much. 
You you mentioned how this era really lacks quality scripts. I mean, latest films you can you can hardly find them. Can you tell me names of some writers that you admire from this era, including maybe particular scripts or screenplays? Okay, thank you. Um, you know, from the seventies, let's say, um, you know, uh, the script for the conversation is very very good, um, extremely good. Um, the script for Midnight Cowboy, going back a little further, is very, very good. Um, actually, the script for The Godfather is very good. That's, they took it from a really horrible book. And this is a good um, lesson in, in how to t- make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. It's, it's really good. Um, um, but going back, the people I love, um, really love, uh, Billy Wilder and his gang of merry collaborators, um, chiefly IAL Diamond, um, Bracket. The script for Sunset Boulevard is so exquisite um, that I'm still angry that it didn't win all the awards over the much more talky um, uh, All About Eve, which is also uh, a fine script. It's not Sunset Boulevard. The script for the apartment is absolutely exquisite. Um, just you, you can't go wrong with any Billy Wilder script, but those two in particular, okay, um, great. This all the work of Preston Sturgis, all of it. Um, we're going back now, but S T U R G E S, as opposed to John Sturgis who wasn't bad, but that's not Preston Sturges. Um, the work of Ernst Lubitsch. Brilliant. Especially to be or not to be, which is a perfect example of how to write a movie about a really serious topic. In this case, uh, persecution and the Holocaust. It's a comedy. And it's heartbreaking. And it's beautiful. And actually, was it Mel Brooks who remade it? That's not bad. But the original To Be or Not To Be is just, is just brilliant. You know, these people really knew how to write. Um, there are... I'm trying to think of things that I know that you could get easily. Um, ah, well, these are in translation, I guess, unless you read um, Polish and or French. Um, but the scripts for the Three Colors trilogy, but particularly Three Colors Red, the last, is one of the greatest screenplays, I think, of the last, I don't know, 30 years. It's just beautiful. Um, and not at all overt. Um, love Him or Hate Him, the scripts for the Michael Haneke films are often extremely good, including mostly... Um, the piano teacher, Amor, um, just brilliant stuff. Um, you can learn something from anything you watch. You just remember that. But these other things, which are like scripts from the past that you can find, and you can watch the movies because they're either streaming or whatever, you will learn more from watching those movies about subtext and metaphor and about how dialogue is used to um, 
it's it's not just people talking to each other. It's creating character. It's um, it's it's advancing the image structure. Um, it's hard to explain, but watch any of those things, and particularly for if you're looking for one Sturgis film. Actually, I would say it's the Palm Beach story. Um, there's famous, more famous ones, but that's the one that the writing is just like vicious. But it goes down like a chocolate shake. It's, it's great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, earlier you said um, th that you and Todd agreed on the root of the narrative for Carol. Can you just share a little bit about what? that? The, um what did I say? <laughs> you said that you and Todd agreed on the roots of the narrative for uh, Carol. Oh, right. I mean, just in that, you know, those basic things that you think of a, a director and a screenwriter are on the same page about, but very often you find out that you're not way too late. We both knew what this was about. And um, at its root, um, uh, it seeks to explore identity in, in, in a way that exposes the folly of identity. If, I'm trying not to be too intellectual about it, but um, basically it's a, it's a narrative that questions um, a lot of what we take for granted about the nature of love, how it works between two people or between a, uh, love interests, between mother and child, between friends, family. That at its root is what's going on there. Um, so he was the f one of the first um, to really, that I could have that conversation with in a way in which I felt like I wasn't being looked at, like, what? What did you say? <laughs> one more movie that you have to watch is... Um, is bamboozled. Uh, I don't remember the year, but early 2000s, something like that. Another great example of how to make a movie, a political movie, without... I, I won't even say anything about it. If you don't know it, just watch it. Yes, Spike Lee's movie with um, the Wayans guy and um, um, Jada Pinkett, and it's about... It's about a minstrel show that they put on television. That's all. <laughs> yeah, I, have a, I have a question. Uh, do you have a favorite decade or, or years where the writing is really good for, for movies, old movies? Um, you know, that's so tough. Um, I would say the period from, generally speaking, 1940 to 1960 is my favorite. Um, and that includes all genres. Because there are some great film noirs that are not thought to be, you know, great films that are just so... Like The Narrow Margin is a great little film. A tight script takes place largely on a train. Um and features the most magnet Marie Windsor um, and all these great actors who weren't 
A-list movie stars, as we call them, but were like very fine character actors. Um, yeah, that would be my favorite. Fantastic. Phyllis, thank you so, so, so much for speaking with us. And that's our evening. <laughs>